Shalom, Uvoker Tov. Hello and good morning. We're very happy to be with you this morning. We thought that perhaps you'd like to hear a little Hebrew. The language of the Holy Scriptures. They say that if Moses went to Israel tomorrow, he could read the morning paper. I don't know if that's 100% correct. But certainly he could understand a lot. But also you know some words in Hebrew. Words like hallelujah and amen. But but you also know some words in modern Hebrew. What you didn't know? radio Words like radio and television. Tractor and taxi. Tractor and taxi. Ketchup and mayonnaise. Ketchup and mayonnaise. You see, now you can go home and say, I can speak Hebrew. <laughs> Well, we have longed to get to Bernie Bible Church. Uh, the first time I ever heard of Bernie, as far as I know, was when Israel Turner told me he was from Bernie, Texas. And I said, where's Bernie? He said, well, not too far from San Antonio. I said, well, have you ever heard of Seguin? He said, of course. So let me tell you the story. This is my favorite story to tell, and it takes four hours. So we're just going to pause the clock. And if I could invent one thing in life, it would be the pause button on time, right? Because <clears throat> I've got six hours of stories that I would love to share with you. But when I was in college, I grew up in New England as a preacher's kid, went to school in upstate New York, and was recruited to sell books with a Southwestern company. Does anybody here ever had a Southwestern salesman knock on your door? Well, for four summers I did that. My third summer, I was in Nashville for training, and my sales manager said, uh, Wes, I'm going to send you to Texas. I'm going to make you the organizational manager. And he showed me on a map where I was headed. So I looked and it said, Seguin, Texas. <laughs> so off I headed for Seguin. And when we got there, I uh, didn't know where we were going to spend the night, so we stayed at the La Quinta. <laughs> yeah, because when you're from New England, you don't know about Spanish, right? And that started the adventure for my life because Lori was also selling books that summer. It was her first summer, and her brother was heading up that organization, and they were in East Texas, over in Houston. And three times during the summer, our organizations got together, and that's the first time that I ever laid eyes on Lori Curry. And uh, in May, we'll be celebrating 40 years of married bliss. Yes. So I've known about Bernie Bible Church, and we regularly receive checks from your church supporting Philippe and Annalie Israel. Um, and it was my privilege to serve alongside Israel for a dozen years, and sometimes we got to do church ministry together. So I didn't ask him ahead of time, but I did ask him this morning if he would come and sing one of my favorite songs. So Iz, come on, bro. I knew he just wanted to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> First I'll sing in Hebrew and then in English. Say <laughs> 
best of times, it was the worst of times. You've heard that expression? Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. How many of you are concerned about the age in which we live? How many of you are really encouraged about the direction in which our country is going? (laughs) Well, we've been talking about this, you know. (laughs) We've got some younger folks on our staff. Lori and I are in our 41st year of service with Life of Messiah. So we're now the old dudes, officially. Um, and so in talking to our younger team members, you know, it's always been true that the old generation has decried the direction that the younger generation is going. I remember when I was a kid, and people talked about us long-haired hippie freaks. and Well, I mean, some of us were. So it's the truth that... Uh, You can look at society around you and and have concern. But I think there really are reasons for concern. I grew up in New England where in a public school, every morning in a public school in Springfield, Massachusetts, liberal Massachusetts, the teacher opened the class every day by reading from the Psalms and praying a prayer in a public public elementary school in Massachusetts. We've moved the marker a long way 
from those days. But you know, when you read in the scriptures, you find that often the stories of God's glory are written against the backdrop of difficult days. Um, It's often been the worst of times. In the Old Testament, when you look at the story of Israel, every year at Passover time, we talk about the redemption from Egypt. Um, God forever after is known as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But when you go back to Genesis 15, you know, Genesis 12 is where God calls Abram. You know, leave your home, your family, your country, and go to the land that I will show you. I'll make of you a great nation, right? I'll bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We talk about that as the hinge pin of human history in the Old Testament. Everything from Bereshit, bara Elohim, at the Shemaim, Ve'eta Aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Through the end of the genealogy of Abram, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, creation, fall, flood, the nations, Abram. All of that is introduction to get us to Genesis 12, 3. It's not the personal blessing that makes that the hinge pin of history. I mean, all of us, if we had time, uh, I expect everyone here could give a personal testimony of how your life has been blessed by God. I doubt you would be here this morning if you didn't have such a testimony. But it's not the personal blessing, it's the global reach. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What could you possibly invent that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth? But God had a very specific blessing in mind. Though the Jewish people have blessed the world in in many ways, uh, I think it's less than one-third of one percent of the world's population today is Jewish. But if you look at the Nobel Prizes, 15% of the Nobel Prizes have been won by Jewish people. And if you think about medicine, more than 30% of the Nobel Prizes in medicine have been awarded to Jewish people. Jewish people have made inroads and contributions to society on many levels. If you look at the entertainment industry, look at how many famous singers, or if you look at Neil Diamond or Barbara Streisand, or look at comedy. But I don't think God had Barbara Streisand and Adam Sandler in mind when he said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? No, it was the spiritual blessings. And then when you get to Genesis 15, many years have passed, and God again appears to Abram and reiterates the the blessings of a son of a great nation. And then the blessing of the land is reiterated. And Abram is kind of wavering in his faith. How do I know, Lord? Genesis fifteen six. Abram believes God, and God credits his faith as righteousness. That's as clear a statement in the Old Testament that justification is by grace through faith. Old Testament, New Testament, same God, same program. He who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Abram is justified by faith in verse 6. And just a couple of verses later, same conversation. It's not like even the next day, same conversation. God says that he's going to get the land. And Abram, the man of faith, the father of faith, as Paul describes him in Romans 5, says, Oh Lord, how may I know? How may I know that I will inherit it? Isn't that interesting? I love the fact that the Bible contains the record of people of faith who struggle with faith, just like 
John, John the Baptist, who points to Yeshua and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he is in jail. Not what I expected as the one who is the Messiah's cousin and forerunner and the one who baptized him in the Jordan and said, Here he is, and now I'm in jail, and shortly thereafter, my head is going to be removed from my shoulders. John sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the expected one, or should we look for another? Man of faith who had some doubts. I think some of us are people of faith, but we look at the circumstances of our world around us, and sometimes our faith can be shaken. Sometimes we wonder about the future. And to a man, Abram, who's struggling with how may I know, God says, know for certain. Know for certain that your descendants are going to go into a land not their own. And there they're going to be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And after it, I'll bring them out with great possessions. Here's Abram struggling. How, how do I know for sure we're going to get the land? And God says, know for certain. Don't you love that we have a know for certain God? I'm telling you, in a time of such uncertainty, when we have no idea who's going to be the president of the United States this time next year, we have a no for certain God. God raises up kings and he sets them down. My fear is that he's going to give us the kind of leader we deserve. And then we're in for four more years of a rough road. But fear not, little flock. We have a no for certain God. And he has a purpose in all that he does. And his purposes are always good, even when our circumstances are not. Know for certain that your descendants are going to go down into a land not their own. And they're going to be enslaved and oppressed. Not for... 40 minutes or 40 hours or 40 days or 40 weeks, but 40 years, two generations, four generations, 400 years, not 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness, 400 years of slavery. My goodness. And let's go to Exodus chapter 3, because that's exactly at the end of the 400 years that God had already marked on the calendar that we find the record of God encountering Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Turn there with me if you would, please. And we're going to wish that we could stop the clock this morning. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So Moses, at the time we're introduced to him here, is 80 years of age. You know, 80 years of age used to seem like really ancient to me. It seems less so today than it did back when I was a teenager. But still, 80 years is a lot of living, right? And Moses has been spending the last 40 years of his life as a shepherd, which is, you know, not such a horrific thing. But when you think about the fact that his first 40 years, he enjoyed all the privileges of a prince of Egypt. If you're God and you want to raise up a Hebrew slave child to be a leader... What better program could you have in store than have him fished out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as a prince of Egypt in the center of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth? All the privileges that accrued to a prince of Egypt were the lot of young Moshe, Moses. Then at 40 years of age, he's out walking and seeing a, an Egyptian taskmaster abusing a Hebrew slave, he lights up. He's incensed to the point where he kills. He kills 
the Egyptian overlord. And the next day, finding out that people know about this, for his own life, he skedaddles off into the wilderness. And the next 40 years, the prince of Egypt is kicking sheep dung in the pasture. Good career move, right? That looks really good on the resume. We lived in Israel from 1980 to 82 and tried to go back every year since then. Sometimes we've been able to go a couple times, sometimes not at all. But I can tell you for sure that when you're down in the Negev and you see sheep or goats out in the wilderness, you never see them unattended. There's always a shepherd or a shepherdess with them. Sheep are stupid animals. They can't be left alone. But you do not see... People in the prime of their life. You don't see 40-year-old shepherds, folks. You can see young people. Children can watch sheep. You can see old people. Moses at 80 would have been a suitable shepherd, but not a 40-year-old man. This is not a good job description for a 40-year-old. His father-in-law is a a priest of Midian, and he is a shepherd caring for not his own sheep, but his father-in-law's sheep. This was not the best of times for an 80-year-old man. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. And he said, Hineni, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, an 80-year-old man who had experienced much, but had never experienced this, hid his face from a holy God. He was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Had God gone to sleep for those 400 years? Know for certain, Abraham, that your descendants are going to be oppressed for 400 years. Is God taking a long Rip Van Winkle type of nap? Is he so focused on the affairs of other nations that he forgets about the people to whom he made unique promises? I don't think so. The 400 years was already predicted. And now 
God looks down and he knows that it's time and he is raising up a leader. He chose Abram to be the father of the Jewish people and he's choosing Moshe, Moses, to be the redeemer of the Jewish people. But Moses said to God, Who am I? I don't know what your response would be if God appeared to you in some miraculous way. I mean, if you look at all the different ways God appears to people, I mean, he walked with Adam and Eve in the, in the cool of the day in the garden. God often appears to people in visions and in trances. In Genesis 15, we know that God appears in a vision to Abram. In Genesis 18, God appears as one of three men. The other two are the angels who end up going off to Sodom and Gomorrah. But when Abram is looking at these folks, he sees three men in human form. But this is a one-off, God appearing in a burning bush. Well, what would your response be? I am the Lord your God. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Well, Moses hides his face and he hears from God that he is supposed to be the spokesman. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, who am I? This is a really important question. God has already introduced himself. I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not sure that Moses knew who the God of his fathers was. I think we presume that Moses has been worshiping the Lord his God for the 80 years of his life. But think about it. He was raised in a pagan palace. The Egyptians had worship services for sure. There were all kinds of deities whom they worshipped. In fact, at Passover time, when we go through the Haggadah, God says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. Remember the first judgment, he changes the Nile River to blood. The Nile River was worshipped as a deity. It overflowed its banks every spring and brought fertility to the earth. And so the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the cow god. You remember in the book of Exodus at chapter 32, when we're at Mount Sinai and Moses is back up on the mountain and God is scribing with his finger on the stone tablets, don't have any gods before me. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And, and don't make any graven images and don't commit adultery. And he looks over Moses' shoulder and what does he see? Down below, Aaron and the Israelites are having a worship service. It's a party down kind of worship service. And there's a golden calf in the picture. This, O Israel, is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God's nose catches on fire. We talk about your face flushing with anger in English. In Hebrew, the idiom is God's nose burned with fury. Stand aside, Moses. You see what your people are doing? I'm going to wipe them out. Where did the Israelites get the idea of worshiping a golden calf? It was an Egyptian deity. What did God do to the cow gods in the ten plagues? He sends a plague and the cows die. God executes his judgments against the gods of Egypt. Moses would have learned about all kinds of deities, but he did not know the God of his fathers from any theologian in Egypt. 
And the next 40 years, he's out in the wilderness, and his father-in-law is a pagan priest of Midian. It's not that he just lived in Midian and worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel. He didn't know who the God of Israel is. And we know that to be true because after Moses goes to Pharaoh's house and brings the Jewish people back to Midian, his father-in-law Jethro says, Now I know that Jehovah is the true God. Jethro wasn't teaching Moses about the God of Israel. So when God reveals himself at the burning bush to Moses, I think this was a first-time introduction to the God of his fathers. And Moses' first response is, who am I? And that's a really important question to ask. When God says go, the who am I question is an important question. Because if we think we're all that in a bag of chips then we really aren't suitable material for the Lord to use. Moses has all kinds of reasons why he is not who God should be ordaining to be his spokesperson before the most powerful potentate in the known world. If anybody knew what it would be like to walk into Pharaoh's office, it would be Moses. Who am I? I'm an 80-year-old man. I've wasted my life on the backside of a desert. You must be mistaken if you think, I'm your guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. This shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Do you see the irony in this? You know, how do I know for sure that I'm supposed to go? Well, you're going to know after the job is done. (laughs) how's that for assurance right you go and do it and when it's done you've accomplished it it's been successful then you'll know that it was really me who told you to do this talk about a walk of faith so who am I that I should go and God says certainly I will be with you certainly I will be with you that's the assurance that helps Moses go forward and this is the first but not the last time that Moses is going to have this kind of attitude. He tells God later, when they're out of Egypt and in the wilderness, God, if you don't go with us, then just kill us here. Kill me now, Lord. If you're not going to lead us, if you're not with us, if you're not for us, then I don't want to take another step. But God has already said, certainly I will be with you. Then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, Now they may say to me, what is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots. I've already promised this is what I'm going to do. 400 years is up. You're my guy. You go, and I will act. And Moses goes, not without protest, but, 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 but talk, 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 so good, good, is the next section here. And God says, okay, Aaron can be your spokesman. And off they go to accomplish what Moses never dreamed God would tap him to do. 
his family was still back in Egypt. Oh, no, he was married to Jethro's daughter, and he and Zipporah began to have children. So you could say his nuclear family was there in Midian, but his mom and dad and sisters and brothers and cousins and aunts and uncles were all still oppressed in Egypt. And how often would his mind have trailed back to the old country, wondering about his family? And now he is going to go. It's amazing as you look at Scripture and see the kind of cast of characters whom God sets his hand upon and sovereignly selects to do his will. It's amazing to me that we we read these stories and we name our kids after these heroes of the faith, but there's still a part of us that says, "Who, who am I? When there's a tugging at our heart that there's a challenge of God, that we're to be his spokespeople in this evil and wicked generation. We can sit and decry the situation. We can wring our hands and, and say, oi, gewalt. If we spoke Yiddish, that's what we would say. Or we can say with Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. It's a great joy. I can tell you that we've never been more excited about serving with life and Messiah than we are today. We see God's fingerprints all over the place. And specifically in the lives of people whom he has called out to serve with us. Our view of recruiting is not that we need to talk to each of you and say, you need to dedicate your life to vocational Jewish evangelism. Everybody here, raise your hand if you're willing to serve the Lord and go and preach the gospel to the Jewish people. That's not how we recruit. We talk about God's enduring love for the Jewish people. Sharing God's heart for the Jewish people is our mission statement. And we want to stir in every heart that we encounter, including yours here today, the reminder that God has a special love for Israel. I've loved you, he says in Jeremiah 31.3, through a Jewish prophet, Jeremiah, to a Jewish audience. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Yes, with everlasting kindness I have drawn you. But we also want to illustrate that if we're willing to be used, God has an assignment for each of us. And it may not be vocational Jewish evangelism. It likely won't be, but God has a job for you. Well, Lori's going to come and tell a story about a young couple from Oregon who God did call to vocational Jewish ministry. If you were in Sunday school, you saw a little clip of the In Search of Shalom, or not In Search of Shalom, the Shelter on the Lake uh, ministry that we have down in Bariloche, Argentina. Um, I don't want to tell you a little of the backstory. Uh, Dylan Harris grew up in um, Alaska, where kayaking, hiking, mountain climbing was just what he did. That's, uh, that was his passion. That was his love. Um, he was an adjunct professor in teaching climbing at Azusa Pacific uh, in California when he read an article in the school newspaper about this girl who had walked the entire Appalachian Trail. And he thought, I need to meet this girl. So they met, fell in love. But while she was a student at Azusa, she had written a paper on the Pan Am Highway, which stretches from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, down through Vancouver, all the way through California, all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, Argentina. And in writing that paper, she just had this passion to travel that entire Pan Am Highway in her lifetime. So after Dylan and Sherry got married, they decided that they wanted to take a stretch of it. 
So they got a tent and sleeping bags and water and their Bibles, and they set out from Southern California. And they traveled all the way down to Tierra del Fuego, del Fuego Argentina, 11,000 miles, took them 400 days, and they did it on bicycles. They fixed 79 flat tires on the way, ate 1,300 cups of rice, 5,500 tortillas. And along the way, the Lord gave them a heart for Jewish evangelism. And you say, why? And, you know, South America, 14 countries they traveled through. Why, why would you get a heart for Jewish evangelism? They met these young backpacking Israelis all along the way. They passed out over 7,000 gospel tracts and witnessed to these young people that had served in the army and they then travel for a year and the adventurous ones go along the Pan Am Highway. They hike and they mountain climb and have adventure. And these were the young people that they were meeting and sharing the gospel with. And so they eventually went back home and uh, the Lord just kept burning in their heart a desire to share with more Israelis. So they said, you know, we heard from these kids, a lot of them also go to like India and Thailand and places like that where it's more new age and it's, you know, there's a drug scene and a party scene. And they said, let's go to India and see if we can meet some more Israelis and, and witness to them some more. So they did. Went back home to, to Bend, Oregon, where they have a home. And um, then they said, you know, let's go to Israel. I mean, we'd have to meet Jewish people there. Let's go there. So they went down, and, and they were at the shelter in Elat, Israel, where we have some staff, and we work in close conjunction with the, the shelter. It's a youth hostel in Israel. And um, that was where they met our staff. And uh, so our staff called us one day and said, you have to meet this couple. You will love them. And... Uh, so Dylan, at some point they, they did another trip down to Bariloche, and uh, they were riding on a bus, and Dylan turned to Sherry and said, I think we should move here. I think we should open a youth hostel, and it would be welcoming to Israelis, and they would be coming to us. And she said, I think you're nuts. Because by this time, they had one child and, and were you know, considering a second. Now they have three. But... You know, she said, you're crazy. But then as she thought about it and prayed about it, and uh, the Lord really worked in her heart. And so they are now in Bariloche, Argentina. They opened a Christian guest house. They don't charge the Israelis who come, and the Israelis come by the thousands. Uh, they, they estimate that about 10,000 Israelis travel through that area in a season, uh, which is like November to April. It's summer down there then. So they take them out on the, you know, hiking trails and take them out on the mountains. And Dylan is a level five mountain instructor, climbing instructor, and so he knows what he's doing. You know, he says, can't you just imagine having these young Israelis on the side of a mountain hanging by a rope and talking about their eternal destiny? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that is the kind of people that the Lord has given us. They're down there and just having a wonderful ministry. We talk about a tale of two cities, and this morning we're talking about a tale of two servants. We've looked at the first, that's Moses. Turn with me in your Bibles to the New Covenant, to the book of Acts. 
You know, I love the book of Acts and the unfolding of the story of the early church. Acts 1.8, God says, or the Lord Jesus said, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then the story begins to unfold as Yeshua ascends to heaven and Peter preaches at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has fallen. He preaches in power. And Jewish people from around the known world who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate not just Passover, but 50 days later, Sukkot, I mean uh, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, and the church is birthed. That's Acts chapter 2, and then we have the unfolding story from there. Um, go with me to Acts chapter 8. Everybody knows Acts 1 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it says in Acts 8 1, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That first sentence of Acts chapter 8 really belongs at the end of Acts chapter 7. It's the conclusion of the story of the stoning of Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit who preaches a powerful message of conviction to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they stone him to death. And Saul is there in hearty agreement with putting him to death. But look at the next phrase. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. A great persecution. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But you get all the way to Acts chapter 8.1, and where are the believers? They're still in Jerusalem. Until the stoning of Stephen. And then they begin to split. And they go from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And then as you read further in the book of Acts, you see it going, the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the earth. So chapter 8 is that wonderful story of Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian treasurer. First fruits, a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile who'd come up to Jerusalem to worship. And that's sort of an interlude between Acts 8.1 where we're introduced to Saul and now we're in Acts chapter 9. We've talked about Moses and his call in the Old Covenant, now we're looking at the second servant, Saul, who is being encountering the Lord here in Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Can you imagine? I mean, this is not just a guy who sits around the dinner table and says, those lousy, and they weren't called Christians yet. We're not to Antioch. The disciples are first called Christians at Antioch. So he wasn't saying those lousy Christians. He's talking about those lousy Messianic Jews, his own kinsmen, Jewish people, who believed that Yeshua was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Jewish prophets in the past. But he, his spiritual eyes are still closed to that truth. And being zealous for the law, Paul was very proud of his Jewishness. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous for the law. That's how he described himself. And you see that here. When he's around the, the table, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. This isn't just a guy who thinks it's too bad that there are some Jewish people who are being deceived into following this false Messiah. And by the way, Jesus is not the first false Messiah who's come on the scene. If you go back to Acts chapter 5 and see the 
believers who are on trial, when James and John are before the Sanhedrin, the ruling court of the Jewish people, they talk about Theodos and others who have arisen as false prophets. It's Gamaliel who says, you know, we, we need to be careful here, guys, because if Jesus turns out to be the true Messiah, then we're, we're really fighting against God. It's an amazing story about Gamaliel. And by the way, Gamaliel was the leading rabbi of his day, and you know who his number one student was? Saul of Tarsus. This same Saul we're reading about was taught by the guy in Acts chapter 5 who says, take care, guys, of the decisions that we make unless we find ourselves fighting against God. But anyway, Saul goes to the leaders, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, asks for letters from the high priest to, the, to go to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was the early way in which the followers of Jesus referred to. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and those who followed him were called the followers of the way, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So think about this. Here's a, a learned rabbi, a scholar, devoted to rabbinic Judaism, who is really upset, really, really upset about this nascent messianic movement to the point where he goes to get authorization from the high priest of Israel to go off to Damascus. And, of course, we know where Damascus is in the news these days because Syria is very much in our news. So he's on his donkey and heading off to Damascus with authority so that if he finds anybody, he can bring them bound to Jerusalem. They can be put on trial. It came about as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now at the burning bush, God introduced himself right from the get-go to Moses. Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knew who he was talking to, though he was visioning, he was seeing a bush that was on fire and not being consumed. He didn't see God in any form. Now we've got Saul approaching Damascus and there's a voice from heaven, this bright light, this blinding light that flashes around him and he is literally on his face. He is on the ground. In his first question, having heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? Think about this. Bright flash from heaven and a voice in his ear. Others with him hear sounds, but not the distinct words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Moses' first question is, who am I? Saul's first question is, who are you? Folks, if you don't have the who are you question right, then really nothing else matters. If you don't know who God is, then there really is no purpose in life on earth. Oh, we can party and we can make money and we can plan for retirement and I mean, we can fill our lives with activities, but in the end, it's dust and ashes. It is wood, hay, and stubble. And we will hear, depart from me, I never knew you, if we do not know him. Who are you but he has a clue because he says, Lord. And the response from heaven is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you 
what you must do. It's interesting to me that God told Moses at the burning bush, you go to Pharaoh. You will be as God to Pharaoh, is how he puts it later in Exodus chapter 3. We didn't finish that entire portion. But God says, you are going to be my representative. You're going to be like God standing before Pharaoh. God himself gives Moses his marching orders. He tells him where he's going to go, what he's going to do, and what he's going to say. Let my people go. Go to Pharaoh's office, tell him, let my people go. Jesus isn't saying that. He says, you go and wait for three days. Saul is fasting for three days. You can only imagine the shock of this guy. This is not a slight course correction. This is a 180. This is a hard 180. This is, I'm going to get those Christians, not called Christians yet, the followers of the way, and I'm going to suppress this message. And now he meets the one about whom that message is, and his life is radically transformed. But Jesus doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He says, you go and wait, and I will tell you what I'm going to do. And then God goes to Ananias, one of the early church leaders in Damascus, and says, hey, you know this guy Saul who's come to town? You go and talk to him. And Ananias says, uh, you're kidding, right, Lord? Uh, I think you have a case of mistaken identity. I'm happy to go and represent you, but not to that guy. That guy's here to find me and haul me off to Jerusalem. But God tells Ananias, I've chosen this guy. In fact, God gives the job description for Saul, not to Saul, but he gives it to Ananias. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Paul's job description is given to him by the Almighty himself. The Lord Jesus says, He is going to bear my name to the Gentiles. I, Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. Look at how Paul begins his epistles. You ask Paul for his business card, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Oh, and by the way, and to kings. And you read the unfolding story in the book of Acts, and Paul speaks. He preaches the gospel before kings, before governors and rulers. And also to the Jewish people, the sons of Israel. How cool is that? that Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles, also has included the Jewish people to the sons of Israel. And Paul's the guy who wrote Romans. And Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's absolutely true. He devoted his life to the proclamation of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The story about this good news about the Messiah. I'm not ashamed to proclaim it to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And if you keep reading here in Acts chapter 9, you find that after a few days, the first people that Paul speaks to are the people in the synagogue. And when he and Barnabas go out on the first missionary journey and they're in Cyprus, their first stop, the first place they go to is to the synagogue. And they preach their way across the island and they stop and they preach in the synagogues. And then... They go to Asia Minor. And every place Paul goes that's recorded in Scripture, you find him meeting the Jewish people first. The apostle to the Gentiles. I, Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, goes first to the Jewish people. Because God's priority, just as Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, 
was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's how we usually say it. But listen to what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, present tense, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. If the gospel is the power of God, there's no change in the tense of the verb. It is the power of God for salvation. It is to the Jew first. Not was, but is. And you folks are helping to carry that same priority. I, I smile when I look at your missions board and I see three Jewish ministries that are supported by this church. May your tribe increase, and I'm not being facetious when I say that. I can tell you many churches we go into and look at the missions board, there's not a Jewish ministry to be found. I haven't been able to stop the clock, and some of you have food in the oven, so I need to close, sadly. But there is a lady by the name of Annalie Israel. You should recognize that name because you support Philippe and Annalie. This tremendous, gifted young couple. You know that she grew up in the mission field? Do you know her dad's name is Hudson Taylor? Did you know that? She was raised by Hudson Taylor. Not the Hudson Taylor. But her dad's name was Hudson Taylor. Her grandfather opened up a field in Brazil for New Tribes Missions. That's where she grew up. She grew up in the jungle of Brazil, among the Indians where her folks were serving. That's your Annalie Taylor Israel. And Philippe, who is the son of one of our missionaries, a Jewish believer who was born in Egypt and has been ministering as a medical doctor in France, their firstborn son, Philippe, God, in the way he orchestrates life, brought Annalie to Philadelphia College of the Bible, now Cairn University, looking for a husband who would dedicate his life to Jewish ministry. And Philippe comes from France asking God for a wife. And they sat together in the same class, eyeing each other, each attracted to the other. But for weeks and weeks, I think the first couple months, they didn't acknowledge that God was leading them together. So here's Annalie's note from yesterday. Please give the Bernie Bible family a big hello from us. We are very grateful for their support and prayers for us. We are especially grateful for their prayers and concern for us in the light of the terrorist attacks in November. Folks, whatever God especially loves, Satan especially hates. You cannot explain the depth and breadth of anti-Semitism, the hatred against the Jewish people throughout history in so many places if you remove the spiritual impulse behind it. The terrorist attacks in November. Many people from the Bernie Bible family express concern and prayers for us. We praise God for keeping us safe during these times. We also praise God for the volunteers God has brought alongside to encourage us and vice versa. Susanna is a girl who volunteers with us regularly by doing translation work. She lost a close friend, Ariane, during the attacks at the Bataclan. You remember the the Bataclan attacks? That was when there were three or four coordinated attacks, the concert, the... I don't even remember all the different sites right now. Their sister-in-law, Philippe's sister, was one block away from where a French policewoman was killed by one of these terrorists at the time it happened. Please continue to pray for Ariane's family, especially her brothers who have reconnected with Susanna. Pray also for God to open the hearts of churches and believers in France to Jewish evangelism. Folks, I wish I could say there were a lot of Bernie Bible churches in France just to be 
preaching and teaching the word like you are here, but also having a heart for the Jewish people, there are few of those churches to be found in that place. My smartphone is doing wonderful things here. I just started to respond to Annalie's note. Um, Pray for the hearts of churches and believers to be open to Jewish evangelism and that we would continue to have opportunities to equip others to tell the gospel to their Jewish friends and neighbors. Life of Messiah staff not only want to share the gospel, but we want to equip other believers in that task. Pray also for Melody, a young Jewish woman who became a believer last summer. She lives far away from any evangelical Christian community. Pray for her mother, who seems very opposed to the gospel. This opposition to the gospel that you see in the New Testament, exemplified by Saul, breathing out threats and murder. Um, If you pay attention to what's going on in Israel today, uh, there have been various iterations of attempts in the Knesset to pass laws to outlaw the proclamation of the gospel. There's another one of those brewing today. Well, there are a lot more stories I could tell, and I wish I could introduce you better to Steve and Diane, who are sitting here in the back. They're transplants from the Midwest down here to New Braunfels. Um, but what a, what a tremendous... This guy worked for Caterpillar. Has anybody ever heard of Caterpillar Tractor? You ever seen those little yellow things that push a whole lot of dirt? Yeah. Well, he, he led several of their plants. He was the director of several of their plants. And they served Caterpillar in France and in Japan and in England, right? And when we were looking for someone who could help oversee the renovation of our new training center, it's an old building but new to us, um, Don Turner and Israel were there in 2008 when we had our vision team trying to figure out what are we going to do with this Emmanuel House property. Strategically located, the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel is right in our neighborhood. And how from Chicago are we going to oversee the renovation of that wonderful property that needed massive amounts of works? And one of our constituents, one of our supporting churches close to headquarters in the south side of Chicago, the wife was reading the newsletter, and she and her husband had served in the church outside Peoria, Illinois, where Caterpillar is headquartered, where Steve and Diane were members. Pastor Tony was Steve and Diane's pastor. Sandy, his wife, is reading about our need for someone to oversee. And she said, I think this sounds a lot like Steve and Diane. She connected. A burning bush, a voice from heaven, the Lord Jesus... Or a pastor's wife reading a newsletter saying, I think Steve and Diane would be a good fit for this. God is so creative in the ways he calls out his people. Don't wait for a burning bush. Don't wait for lightning from heaven. Pay attention to that still small voice. There are opportunities in front of you to serve the Lord right here in this church, in this community, and around the world. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we going to sit and watch America go to hell? Are we going to watch the world devolve into immorality and paganism? Or are we going to stand up and say, Lord, Hineni, here am I, send me. May God help us to do so. If we can be a resource to you in any way, 